All right, well, welcome to everyone. Again, it's a blessing to see all of you here today. We're going to move on in our study of the life of David. So I would invite you, please, to turn to 1 Samuel 16 once again. We've spent uh, the last couple of weeks looking at the first half of that chapter. We're going to look at the remaining portion today and in all likelihood next week um, as we go uh, through this passage. Now, uh, no, I'm going to just jump right into the reading and then we'll get to the regular introduction then. So if you'd stand, if you're able, I'm going to begin reading at verse 14, uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, and then I'll read down to the end of the chapter. Now, the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from Yahweh tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and Yahweh is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. God adds his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Please be seated. Well, up to the point of David's anointing, Saul had been upheld by the presence of God's Holy Spirit within him. But he had resisted that precious Holy Spirit. He had grieved and provoked that spirit. And thus, when uh, Saul's successor was anointed, the spirit made no delay in departing from Saul. If you might remember from last week, we saw there in verse 13 that the Spirit rushed upon David uh, from the time of his anointing. Interestingly, if you go back to chapter 10 and look at verses 1, 6, and 10, I, I, I commented just a moment ago that Saul had been guided by and dwelt by the Spirit of God. And it comes from chapter 10, where uh, upon his anointing, It says there that the Spirit rushed upon Saul and that he was found there among the prophets and he was prophesying and doing all those kinds of things. So the Spirit of God was with him, uh, but was grieved and the Lord withdrew his favor and his guidance from Saul. You know, if this was you and me, we... I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that most of you would probably feel this way. Um, when, you, uh, when you have a plan and you want to put it into execution, 
you kind of want to get on with it, right? Um, plans that go on for years or even sometimes days or even hours can really irk you. It's like, well, I just want to get it done. And uh, hurrying into things had not done Israel any good whatsoever. Saul had been plucked from obscurity himself. He'd been thrust untested into the limelight uh, by an impatient nation. They wanted a king now. Saul had never been in a court. Saul had no clue about any of that. But he was pushed forward, and the Lord essentially let Israel have their way and gave them someone who wasn't ready to step into office. Eventually, Saul would be undone in rebellion, in fear, and in shame. You know, the Lord's plan of succession, the Lord's here in this case, and in general, his plans are generally not done instantaneously. He prepares for things. He prepares you and I for things. As impatient as we might be to get on with it, whatever the Lord has for us. Um, I remember some years ago doing some ministry in a church down in, uh, I think it was Kentucky. It's been 1982, so forgive me if I don't, if I'm a little fuzzy on the details. Wow, 1982, that was like 40 years ago. Uh, yikes. Anyway, we were at this little church out in, the, out in the country, and the pastor was a 23-year-old single guy um, who had graduated from the same school we had, um, there at Bob Jones, and he had been a Bible major, got, uh, got done with his four-year degree, and his home church says, we want you to be the pastor, we need a pastor, come and be a pastor, and he was like, okay, yeah. and, I, and, he, and he told us this story, he said, you know, I thought I just need to get out there. The school often encouraged the always encouraged the students to go back for grad school before they actually got into ministry. A little more, you know, seasoning, a little more maturity, all that kind of stuff. But he was eager, and, that's, and a lot of guys were eager to get out and get on with it. And um, our little team that was out ministering of six guys, uh, most of us were Bible majors, and he sat us down. He wasn't much older than we were. But he said, guys, go to grad school. Uh, and he wasn't married, so he said, he said it's, it, my, my congregation loves me. There was an older congregation. I was like, but they all treat me like I'm their grandchild. I can't counsel anybody, really, that on too many things because I don't have any life experience. I should have not been in a hurry. And uh, I felt sorry for the guy. He was in a, it, was a, it was a struggle, a place where people loved him and cared for him, but he would have a difficult time ministering because he had been impatient uh, and did not want to get fully prepared. Um, now, David, uh, the Lord has a different plan for David. And his preparation begins in this passage that I uh, just read to you there in chapter 16. But this is not going to be a momentary thing. Okay, he went through um, 
this one, this one little, he entered into service, so yep, he must be ready to go. Let's make him king. It would be years before he became king. And a whole lot of water would go under the bridge and a lot of opposition and a lot of testing, a lot of, of uh, events that would really demonstrate how much of a man after God's own heart he really was, particularly in contrast to Saul, who even though the spirit of God had departed, even though he knew what God had said and what God's plan was, Saul fought against God's plan, didn't want to relinquish his place. But David eventually would be fit to lead God's people in a way that Saul never was. And that doesn't mean that, uh, I think we all know this, that David was perfect. Uh, his, uh, his kingship, his, his rule was often flawed because of his sins. And yet uh, the remarkable truth is, is that the Lord prepared him in a particular way uh, to carry on this uh, task to lead God's people. But this passage here uh, is not solely concerned with David. David's greatest descendant, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, endured similar times of testing, did he not? As he proved himself to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And even you and I, as lesser servants, experience the same kind of training in our own context that David experienced in his. Dear friends, God knows what he's doing in your life. As we go through this passage again today and probably next week as well, we're going to be addressing this idea that we want to serve God and we want to serve him now. And we, want to, we want to have the, the, uh, the fullness of everything. I was just reading... But, but we want it quick. I was just reading a, an article um, online that asserts, and some of this is going to make some of us feel really good, it asserts the most productive, I don't know how they figure this out, whether they go by money or whatever else, but the mo- in view of the uh, authors of this study was that the most productive time in a person's life is between the ages of 60 and 70. Yes! And the, the second most is between 50 and 60. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, uh, it calls to mind another story. I'm full of stories this morning. It calls to mind another story of uh, the, the college student who went in to see uh, the dean of his school, and uh, he was asking the dean if there was some faster way that he could finish his degree and, and graduate and get on with it. And the dean's reply was, well, it all depends on what you want to be. Uh, if you want to be, uh, you know, an oak, that takes years. If you want to be a squash, that takes six months. <laughs> Right? We want things, you know, we, we want God's best for us. We want to be at the pinnacle of our spiritual life and our happiness. We want to see our lives all put in order. We want to have all the problems that are before us taken care of. And we want to 
feel like we've got the ability to deal with all those things, and we want it now. And there's a certain part of, I think each in each one of us, we can say, yeah, I can understand why. I mean, who wants to go through all the, the misery? But the reason that people who are older are more productive is because they've learned a thing or two in their lives prior. Um, <laughs> speaking with Brother Daryl and, and uh, Sister Diane back there before church today, we were talking about how, you know, we're not quite as resilient as we used to be. <laughs> and uh, th- that's certainly true. And yet, uh, um, I, I do remember playing basketball as a high schooler in a in a city league that was populated mostly by these, to my mind, a bunch of old guys. And we got thoroughly trashed all the time. Yeah, we could run circles around them, but we just didn't, you know, they actually knew what they were doing. Their movement was actually smart. And we learned a lot from those guys after being pushed around the court all the time. Um, figured out a thing or two, but we had to go through that adversity to learn it. So, all right, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. But in our lives with the Lord, sometimes we want things to happen now. David, can you think about his mindset? He's been anointed to be king. He's a teenager. Okay? And you, we're not told the exact amount of time here between when that took place and, and when God's Spirit departs from Saul and he gets called up into service. It seems like it's probably not very long. So he's a very young man. He knows that he's been anointed to serve the king. Um, but, can, you know, those of you who are uh, teenagers here, particularly if you're a little bit of an older teenager, just put yourself in that position for a minute and think, all right, I've been anointed to be king. Or let's just take it out of king. Uh, let's say um, you're, you're the heir apparent to be <laughs> anything. The next... Um, well, let's get a little closer to higher levels. You know that you're going to be the next governor of the state of Idaho. I'm going to stop there and not go to where I kind of want to go. But you know that that's going to happen at some point in the future. Would that change the way that you live your life? The way that you think about everything that you do? And then imagine that the governor who um, has, is not doing a very good job, invites you to come and serve him. Think about what your mindset would be. And that's what's going on with David. David's going to go into this court and he's going to see some things and go, whoa, something needs to change here. And yet, what does he have to do? He's not put, he's not like, okay, you're now king. He's got to be the background music. He gets to be Mr. Elevator music. Uh, Some of you may have seen the video that floats around of uh, Joshua Bell playing the violin in, uh, in Subway Station in New York. Have you ever seen that? 
He's in disguise. He's got a three and a half million dollar violin. He's playing one of the most complicated pieces of music written for it. And everybody is obliviously just walking by. They're hearing this beautiful music. He made, he did that all day. He got 32 bucks of people going by. And mostly the only ones that wanted to listen to him were little kids and their parents pulled him along. Come on, we don't, we don't have time. That same night then he went and did a concert where the tickets were $100, $200 or more apiece. Um, and it was part of a study for things in context and how we, how we perceive things around us. Do we really see the value? You know, Saul was only concerned with feeling better. More on that point in a minute. You might tell, I, this week has been, the preparation on this message has been something else. And my head is just filled with this, so it's kind of all gushing out, and I'm, not, I'm getting out of order. So I need to get back to my, 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 or my, my order here, or, or I'm going to get hopelessly uh, mired down, and we're never going to get anywhere. Um, God knows what he's doing in the way that he prepares you, in the time that he takes, in the things that he puts you through. And so he prepares his chosen servants. And he prepares them in ways we see here in this passage, which has a lot of things going on in it. And it, it's kind of curious as to... Uh, um, Tom? Where's Tom? Some folks outside coming in that kind of wonder where they're going. Um, uh, this passage has some really strange sounding things in it and some things that makes you kind of wonder how it's all fitting in and what's going on and, and, and on all that. So let's begin by, by looking at the first aspect of how the Lord prepares his servants. And that is that he prepares his servants in context. In context. In other words, it's not theoretical preparation. I think we're all familiar with that idea, and, 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 um, and I think everybody here would agree with it, that the knowledge that you gain through um, books is one thing. And it has its place. It's very important. So you make sure you get your details down and all that kind of stuff. But knowledge, that, that knowledge put to test in practice, in the context of, of the ministry or the things that you're doing, uh, is, is far greater. Far greater. Um, I was just talking with... Um, Susan here uh, a little bit ago about a calligraphy project. She's amazing. Sorry I'm, if I'm embarrassing you, but she's amazing. Okay. I know some things theoretically about calligraphy. I, you know, I've actually tried it a little bit of time. I'm not amazing. Okay. But I, I, I know some of the basic concepts. I got some theory there. But um, I've never been really trained in it. I don't really know what I'm doing. Uh, Mine look like chicken scratch. Uh, hers are works of art. Because she took the, the, the theoretical and the training and she's got years of, of practice at it. So that when you, when you look at my stuff, you go, <laughs> nice, 
You look at her stuff, you go, nice. Because of the difference that that experience in context makes of actually doing it. Um, but what is the context here? Sometimes, you know, when, when we want, the context that we want to go about doing and learning and preparing is generally that we want the easy way. We want everything to just fall into place. We love it when it happens occasionally. Uh, but that's not the context that the Lord takes, that, that the Lord places David in. And it's often not the context that he puts us in. Look what we have here uh, in verse 14. The Spirit of Yahweh has departed from Saul. This is a context of spiritual decline. Not what you would expect God to do. Not what David really would have wanted. Wouldn't it have been preferable, humanly speaking, if Saul was committed to God, spirit-filled, that he could come along and mentor this young man? Which, by the way, Saul never, to, never really did, that we know of. I mean, there may have been some other things here, particularly once he did become armor-bearer. He might have taught him a few things about swinging a sword around, but usually that was left to the underlings. It's not clear that Saul ever mentored David at all. In fact, what we get is that Saul, um, even though he's got, you know, we're going to see in the next chapter, really familiar, David and Goliath, that whole story, and when David shows up, and David's like, I mean, Saul's like, doesn't even recognize him, and yet this is the guy, again, Mr. Elevator music in the background, unnoticed. I mean, you see that distance there from, from Saul. David could have really benefited by a spiritually strong king who would mentor him along. But that's not what God did. God put him in this time of spiritual decline there in the court. Saul's rebellion had left him in a spiritual wasteland without God's guiding spirit, without hope of ultimate endurance. He knew that he was being replaced. Still, he's the king, and he's got authority that he's showing and, he, and exercising. He's going out and doing battles, and some of those, particularly early on, uh, went well, but the, the, that was getting more infrequent. He had the appearance of favor, in other words, in his office, but he had none of the reality. Saul doesn't know anything about David as of yet, after the anointing. Um, again, another argument for it being fairly soon after the anointing. Uh, it, it, it was still a secret. Saul would probably not have been likely to go, oh yeah, David, the one that's anointed to be my replacement. Yeah, let's bring him on board. Probably wouldn't have happened. He knows, however, that God has chosen someone else. David arrives here in some pretty spiritually dark days. Would it not be delightful if all our days were just idyllic and everything just flowed along as it was supposed to be, that we had no opposition from anybody, that all of our equipment always worked, that we never ran out of money, that we never get sick, that all of our friendships remain true and strong, 
that every relationship that we have just keeps growing and flourishing and joy and, and abundance. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't all of us prefer to train in a situation where, you know, everything just went like clockwork the way it was supposed to go? Some of you have taken uh, extensive trainings in your various fields of endeavor. And uh, the best trainings are not those where everything goes according to plan. But the best trainings are when you get thrown curveballs and you have to apply the principles that you've learned in situations you didn't expect because you, you have to think about it uh, much more clearly uh, than you do if everything just fits the formula. But all days are not idyllic. There is illness. There's brokenness in relationships. There's uh, material want. There is weariness, physical affliction, uh, external oppression that comes from society, from even sometimes from people that you thought were your friends. Remember the words of Mordecai to Queen Esther. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Up to that point, Esther had been uh, kind of going along. She'd been in the court. She knew how everything worked. But when push came to shove, she knew how to behave like a queen. Which, uh, if she had not had the long preparation to get to that point, she wouldn't have. But now, she's being truly tested in a way that was phenomenally fearful. Not what anybody would want. And yet, that's what God uh, not only had prepared her for that moment, but would continue to prepare her through that moment for what was to follow even afterwards. So do not be discouraged by the dark days around you. Yahweh is preparing you for himself. Consider the example of another greater king, our Lord Jesus, born in poverty, born in a time when the nation was in servitude to Rome, born in a time when spiritual leaders were more concerned about preserving their place than they were the revelation of God's holy word. A time of spiritual decline. And yet the Lord, our God, in his wisdom, prepares his servants in just such times. This context, though, is more, it's, not, it's, it's more than just a time of decline. This context is actual uh, judgment that is going on. Divine judgment is happening here. Not only are the times looking grim in David's day, they're spiritually speaking, and actually politically speaking, even though uh, it remained, that still remained to manifest itself, was downright the times were downright hopeless because of Saul's sin and rebellion. He was being judged. It must have been an eye-opener for the uh, young shepherd boy from Bethlehem to come into the house of Saul and see him in his... Uh, it's unclear exactly, uh, so I don't want to speak over... You know, there's so many connotations to these words, but 
to see him in a in his deranged state, in his whether it was depression, whether it was just agitation, whatever else that was going on with him, it wasn't good. It wasn't healthy. Everybody's noticing this. And in this time of judgment, to come into that setting and look for David, it's kind of like, well, why am I even here? I should just really not be here. Maybe I'll just, I'll wait for another time. But he didn't do that. The Lord... Um, uh, put him here in this time, I think, and if, if for nothing else, for David to get a first-hand glimpse to look at what happens when you sit on the, when you rebel against God and you have suffered His judgment, it would be a lesson well learned for someone who was going to be king eventually. Now, I have to spend a little time, and this is why I know we're not going to finish this this week. I've got to spend a little time on what this evil spirit from the Lord is. This is a, one of the more curious things um, that you see in the Old Testament. What is going on? Well, there are some options here. The first one is that Saul is demon-possessed. And there have been those that have put forward that view. But that's kind of problematic to my mind, since this is from Yahweh. It just uh, goes against the grain of what uh, I think the scriptures um, portray about Yahweh and his relationship to the fallen angels and so on. Um, he's not possessing, he, possessing him or allowing him to be possessed by an evil spirit. It, it's interesting that, that uh, Saul, throughout his continued monarchy, um, when he's lucid, praises Yahweh and, and you know, repents and so on. Um, you know, how sincere it all goes and all of that. But it seems hard to think that someone who's demon-possessed would even be able to do that. Um, what Saul does. And then there's the whole idea of how mere music could send a demon packing. Um, not quite sure. I mean, I love music. You all know that, but it is a question. Ultimately, the presupposition would be that Saul is completely an unbeliever. That's hard to prove uh, from the text. Certainly one who's astray, but uh, he does not seem to be a rank unbeliever. A second uh, option, kind of at the other end of the spectrum, is that uh, this word spirit is really referring more to kind of a frame of mind or situation uh, that uh, he's subjected to mental affliction, to depression, agitation, as something that Yahweh has sent as a judgment, as a punishment upon him, springing out of the guilty conscience that he no doubt has and an intensified by uh, Yahweh's uh, direct involvement. Kind of a similar thing to how Yahweh judged Nebuchadnezzar. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar lifted himself up about this great Babylon and what a great king he was and how you know all the nations of the earth were subject to him. And the Lord said, uh, no. <clears throat> and uh, uh, basically uh, relieved him of his sanity for a while. Um, and he went out and ate grass and grew his hair and 
turned into quite a uh, kind of, you get the, I always have this picture of Cousin It with claws um, with Nebuchadnezzar. But then he gets his right mind back at the end of that seven years and is restored to the king, kingdom. That kind of thought is another option. The uh, spirit then would not be referring to, uh, the evil spirit would not be referring to a, an actual demon, but just a troubling, unsettled mindset um, and heart response to a situation. The, the problem with that, though, and it's tempting, I kind of like to go that way in one respect, but the problem is, is that it's, it seems to be fairly clear that this is an actual spirit. And the reason I say that is because of the um, counterpoint that we have in verse 14, where it says, now the spirit of the Lord, actual spirit, departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Um, it, it, it just grammatically, uh, it just seems like it should be an actual demon. So what's going on there? You may think, well, this, this isn't much more helpful than the first one, but the third option would be that Saul is being oppressed by a demon, afflicted by a demon, not possessed, but an external oppression. And for a while I thought, don't really, not too happy with that. Um, and yet it occurred to me that a very similar situation took place when Satan came to God after walking to and fro among the earth and said, have you considered your servant Job over here? And the Lord gave Satan permission to go and torment Job. Remember? Though, and the reasons are different. Uh, Job was being tested, uh, a test that he uh, had no idea what was going on in heaven, really. But uh, as far as Job was concerned, it wasn't because he had rebelled or whatever. In Saul's case, it wasn't that Saul was being tested to see what he was going to do. We already seen what Saul was going to do. Saul was being sifted. Saul was being judged. But uh, it seems that uh, an actual demon was um, permitted by God to uh, make Saul's life miserable. Now, this view is quite common. I'd say it's probably the most common view among conservative and sound theologians uh, through the centuries. Um, now, I, I, you still have the same kind of challenge with the music. And I kind of wrestled with that one for a while. E even then, uh, there's a, how's that, how's that going to really help? Well, Matthew Henry helped me here. This is a little longer quote, but I, I thought it was so good. Um, I won't give it all to you. Music, he said, has a natural tendency to compose and exhilarate the mind when it is when it, that is the mind, is disturbed and saddened. Not that the music charmed the evil spirit, but it made Saul's spirit sedate and allayed those animal spirits by which the devil had advantage against him. The beams of the sun, as it is the learned Bochart's comparison, he's quoting Bochart, the beams of the sun cannot be cut with a sword, quenched with water, or blown out with wind, but by closing the window shutters, they may be kept out of the chamber. Music cannot work upon the devil, but it may shut up the passages by which he has access to the mind. 
and that, that helped me kind of think about, all right, how the music could be helpful. A Band-Aid, temporary, see that? Uh, it, it, David just didn't play once and the spirit was gone and never bothered Saul again. He, he would come back repeatedly. But nonetheless, it, it provided a little bit of a, a little bit of relief when, as we see there at the end, that Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him when David played. Uh, um, little sidebar here. Back in 1990, um, there was a, 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 a contemporary Christian uh, uh, hard rock artist named Larry Norman. Some of you may know who he is or was. Don't know if he's still alive or not, but he's dead? Okay. Well, he uh, had a song that was entitled, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? You ever hear that? And the whole song is about, well, you know, I like hymns and everything, but I want to dance and I want to have my thing. So, you know, why should the devil have all the good music? I'm going to do my thing. Uh, it's a very, it's an awful song. Anyway, but I just thought it was ironic. That sprung to mind. It just it was ironic that when David played, he plays on the lyre, he plays this beautiful music, and the devils leave. So it seemed to me that demons don't like good music. They don't like music that glorifies God. They don't like that. So they left. It's kind of a similar situation where a lot of gas stations and convenience stores play classical music outside so that people won't come and rob them. You know they do that, right? Yeah. Because nobody wants to be around that stuff. Like, ooh, Bach. Anyway, go rob somewhere else. Um, all right. That's enough on that. I, I, I'm opting for the last one, um, that, uh, that, uh, that, the, that the Lord is permitting uh, some affliction by, uh, by demons to Saul. Why he chose that affliction, that punishment, I don't know. I would suspect in light of the, the emphasis in the text upon the Spirit rushing upon the Lord's anointed, that this, the, the, this punishment would dramatically emphasize the necessity of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit to do His work. You know, um, where do we need that more but in the context of judgment? When we've got that, when we see difficulty all around, how easy would it be for David? To look at Saul and his situation and take on an attitude of superiority, arrogance. Well, clearly, I can see why I can see why I was chosen here, and that why he needs to be out of there. That's not a spirit-filled attitude, is it? We see David, and it's suggested here by this that as he returned again and again. When Saul was experiencing these things, he continually did the menial task of being the background music to help Saul calm down. So, in this context, uh, it's, uh, you know, even Saul's other servants, I mean, they seem to understand that Saul's affliction is a punishment. Certainly, they recognize that Yahweh is behind it. 
And Saul knows that he needs something or someone to help him. Uh, Matthew Henry will go on to say that uh, Saul would have been better served if his servants had said, you know, Saul, why don't you repent? But as it was, uh, they, they were going for just helping their master feel better, uh, even with the, uh, the uh, band-aid of music, which is, of course, of temporary value. Now, we're going to wrap up here. We're out of time for this morning, but I want you to notice something, and we'll pick up here. that Even in the, in the midst of this judgment, when Saul should be thinking clearly, more clearly, about his relationship to God, his performance of his duties, all of those things, what is Saul most concerned about? I mean, look at the instructions that he gives to the servants. Well, go find me someone who's skillful in playing and bring him to me. Now just stop and think about that for a moment. If you are undergoing intense divine pressure, time of punishment, affliction, sorrow, depression, agitation, Think about what you would ask for in somebody to help you. I'm not saying that we're going to do better than Saul. Chances are we won't. Saul's only criteria that we know of here is make sure he can play that thing. He doesn't ask about character. He doesn't really even ask about I mean, the, his servant's going to give him a reference, you know, association with Jesse the Bethlehemite. Um, but as far as, you know, anything like that, Saul doesn't seem to be concerned about that. That's not um, all that unusual in someone who's self-centered, full of themselves. It's all about me. I just want to get this fixed. Saul, and you see this throughout Saul's you're going to see as we go through the life of David, we're going to be doing, talking quite a bit about Saul. For Saul, time after time, he's mostly concerned about fixing a mess. Externally. That's mostly what he's concerned about. Not about what's going on in his heart. Occasionally he has some repentant times. But mostly it's about, well, how do I fix this? Usually it's by force or some other thing. Instead of really, what, what would the Lord have here? Doesn't, Saul, doesn't, Saul isn't going there. Well, I need to stop at this point. Um, there's one more aspect of this context. I will give you it for those of you who are just going to be driven crazy if I don't at least finish this point with the blank so you can fill in the blank. You can think about it over this week and we'll talk about it next time as we'll pick up here. It's a context... Uh, yes, of, there's decline spiritually, there's judgment going on, times are difficult, it's hard, but there's also some positives in this context, and, and that is the context of external order. Okay. I've got to zip my lip and not start on that, or we're going we're gonna to be quite a bit later. So, We'll pick up there, but we'll talk about external order and how the Lord uses that external order. There's some interesting things to think about here in our own context. 
of the order within which we are obligated to work. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll uh, take those things. Let's meditate on how the Lord prepares his servants in uh, sometimes difficult contexts and walk patiently before him and contentedly waiting upon his time to make us fit to serve our King. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for the blessing that is ours, that you do not leave us to our own devices. We thank you that you prepare us, even though sometimes the preparations seem difficult to us. They stretch us, they test us. We don't like the pain, we don't like the affliction, we don't like the suffering. We don't like to, even if the affliction is not ours per se, but to witness it around, around us. And, to, and, and things are hard. Lord, help us to patiently wait upon you as you prepare us. Rejoice that you are not preparing us to be squashes. You're preparing us to be oaks. And you're taking your time and you're doing it well. Lord, we rejoice in your sovereign providence over our lives. Let us be filled with hope and not despair when you test us and prepare us. In Christ's name we pray.